Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Hello and welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Today we're talking about the McLaren F1 GTR. We're going to talk to author Mark Cole, who's just produced a book all about the uh, the McLaren F1 GTR called, surprise, surprise, GTR. We're also going to be talking to Derek Bell about the 1995 Le Mans 24-hour race, where he drove the Harrods McLaren with son Justin and that he was so close to winning that event. I'm joined by our regular team, Paul Jurd, Jim Roller and Joe Bradley. And Paul's going to talk also with Peter Hyam, who has just produced the latest of his history books. And uh, we'll go through that. But first, I don't think we can do anything without talking about the recent Monaco Historique, because I think that the event came of age this year with some fantastic races in some fantastic cars with some unbelievable drivers. It was Nelson Piquet who once said that driving a Formula One car around Monaco is like riding a trials bike around your bathroom. And Joe Bradley had the opportunity to talk to a man who was doing the commentary at the event at the weekend. And that, of course, is Andrew Marriott. So, Andrew, you're freshly back from covering the Monaco Historics. Um, I was jumping up and down on my sofa at home. That was that was just an exquisite event for so many reasons. Real racing, wasn't it? Real Formula yeah. 1 racing around one of the most testing circuits in the world, the most iconic racing circuit in the world. Beautiful weather. Great entry, despite all the COVID problems. They had half the cars that they normally had, but it didn't seem to matter, did it? Particularly in the afternoon when we had those last two uh, Formula One races. And, and yeah. because everyone's talking about the, the, the Marco Werner Jean Alesi incident, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And uh, before we talk about that, because I think we could probably discuss that for an hour. Um, I thought that the shorter grids, the smaller grids, actually made for better racing because certainly in the early, I think the 66 to 71 category, where we had the certies of uh, Michael Lyons being chased by Stewie Hall, that was a, that that race, that actual battle, those two guys were absolutely on the edge, weren't they? But that was allowed to breathe. That yeah. wasn't that didn't get truncated by them having to come across bat markers. So I think that the smaller grid kind of worked better for, for, for some bizarre reason. As much as we'd like to see a lot of these cars, it made for better racing, I thought. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be a sort of optimum number, hasn't it? And we did have yeah. some races with only sort of eight cars in it, and that wasn't enough. And remember, mm. in the old days, of course, for the Formula One Grand Prix at Monaco, they only allowed 16 to start, and quite a lot of people went home, and then they increased it to 20. Um, 
But uh, yes, I think you're right. You have a point there. I mean, you, you mentioned Michael Lyons. He was, of course, the star of the show mm. for more than one reason. I mean, I, firstly, he won three races, three big trophies and three very nice uh, Tag Heuer watches. But, of course, the, the one race he, he was sort of almost gifted was the one where Lacey and Werner clashed. And, you know, yeah. then, then he, his decision to go and put the trophy. And we, we on the TV coverage, unfortunately, there weren't any uh, pitch reporters there because of COVID. But you could yeah. sort of hear what he was saying. And he said, no, you're still the winner. And he went and put the trophy onto Werner's car. Uh, that was su- such, a, you know, a strong brilliant move by him i thought and and showed yeah. what a great guy he is uh, we wonder about michael lyons he's very much in that the, the family and he runs a family cars but you know that guy has got huge talent and i did read an interview i read an interview with him and said you'd like to try an lmp2 car and i'd like to see him on one because the, the guy is good and, yeah we've uh, seen it we've seen him in gt cars haven't we and he's very he's very very good in yeah. anything he gets into he's but to to be able to to be able to tail along behind Jean Alessi and Marco Werner, both legends in their and their very what was very different disciplines at, at the, in their contemporary careers, and Michael Lyons is right there with them. They didn't get away, and then in in the other category races, he was at, very much at the front and showing that showing everyone the way around. Yeah, we've got to remember that in that Hesketh three hundred eight E, the Frank Derny designed last Hesketh, not not the one that James Hunt, you know, won the Zandvoort uh, Dutch Grand Prix in. Um, that wasn't the world's greatest car. I, I think it shows Andrew that with the likes of Michael Lyons, who we know is at the top of his game, that young man, um, it shows that these cars are given the respect to absolutely thrash in the way that they were built and intended to be built. Um, and it's commendable, really, that these guys are, are willing to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of historic racing around, and we see these cars, uh, Joe, don't we, quite a lot, but not in these surroundings, the surroundings of Monaco. Uh, such yeah. a difficult track to uh, to race. I mean, we said it several times uh, yesterday, but still making a start is absolutely vital, isn't it? You've got to make a good start. and um, because He showed that, didn't he? overtaking or if you've got um, closely matched cars is very, very difficult. You know, that Werner Lazy battle was so interesting, wasn't it? Because you got there, Jean Lazy, winner of one Grand Prix, but competed in over 200 against Marco Werner. Okay, absolute sports car race, but really wanted to be a Grand Prix driver. And uh, he'd actually been to Tyrrell, to the Woodyard. And uh, at the Woodyard, he was asked for more money than, uh, than he had. So that uh. went away. And then he went to, he did test for Minardi and did a very good time. But again, they wanted money. He didn't have it. So that was at the end of his Formula One career. He, he does actually own a, a Formula That wasn't his um, Lotus um, 77. Uh, and he's also raced uh, an ex, one of those ex louder Ferraris in the past. Yeah, um, yes. It, yeah. But he actually re- quite recently bought, his, bought another Tyrrell. Um, but he hasn't raced that one yet. But he actually owns it himself. So he spent a bit of it. Is it you know, he's such an interesting chap, Marker, because, you know, three times Le Mans winner in three successive years, three times Le Mans, American Le Mans champion, one Sebring, I think, probably three times as well, um, won the Daytona 24 in the early part of his career. And, um, and just a huge enthusiast still. But he was getting a bit ragged, I thought. And um, 
Well, uh, frustrated, uh, I thought. I remember Werner being the, very much the man to beat in German F3. Don't think he came across to the UK, but he was certainly the man to beat in Europe in Formula 3. So he was destined for Formula 1, wasn't he, before he went on a sports car tangent? He was destined for Formula 1, and it was a money thing. Um, mm. he, he just didn't have enough money. And uh, he uh, then sort of got sidelined into, into touring cars for a while, that German two-litre series that uh, actually I covered and uh, he raced an Opel in that quite a lot and I think a Nissan as well that's where I first met him and then um, he, he was lucky to he then moved into uh, Porsche Super Cup because he had a very good sponsor in Porsche Super Cup uh, along with um, Philip Peter uh, Infineon uh, sponsored them and uh, that got him a one-off drive at Le Mans in a private Audi um, a sort of second string Audi, but they did a really good job. And Joe Hauser, who was a famous engineer for Audi, told Wolfgang Ulrich, "You've really got to sign this bloke." Mm. And that's why. And then, of course, they did sign him because um, he's such a quiet chap. You know, he, you know, you got the Piros and the McNishes uh, and those mm. sort of people in that team, uh, and smoking Frank Beeler and all so on. Uh, but Werner really was sort of an underrated star, and of course, he had such a terrific career with Audi. But he just loves his racing. As I said at the beginning, he built his own Formula Ford car when he was just a kid. I mean, he drove around. Um, he drove around Le Mans when he was fourteen years old. Around uh, not Le Mans, sorry, around the Nurburgring in, in in a in a borrowed Capri, <laughs> I think. Um, so from I think came from Klaus Niedwitz actually, who uh, sort of befriended him. But anyway, um, great guy, Marco. So sorry he got the fifteen second penalty. He was obviously yeah. absolutely desolated by it, and obviously he refused to go on the podium and, and all that that we saw. But you know, you've yeah. got, you got to have a bit of. You've got to have a bit of um, drama like that, haven't you, really? It, it, it was very, very dramatic. That's that's the only way I can describe it. Um, it, it kind of soured what was a fantastic race and fantastic uh, sort of closure to the event. But I think, you know, I think it, it's it certainly got attention to the event. Um, you, you mentioned the Hesketh of... Um, Michael Lyons. Michael Lyons, the, the, the one that he took the win in, in uh, I think, the G... Uh, yeah, it was series. a good race, yeah. Um, it was the 308E, and you mentioned that in period. It wasn't a very good car. And I think I've, I've, I've certainly know people who restore these cars, and the money that was able to be spent, or the lack of money that was able to be spent on those cars in period, have now been able to be spent on them and development and the continuation of the development of you know, maybe strengthening the suspension pickup point, a little bit less flex in the chassis. And you've got things. One that comes to mind is Bob Berridge's uh, uh, Theodore, um, that he ram. It was a ram, uh, Bob, Bob Berridge. And he had that car going really well because he did a lot of work on it. And, and I suspect the same can be said from the uh, with regards to the Hesketh and a lot of the cars that we see because they are restored but they're strengthened in lots of ways, albeit they are still from that period of motor racing, which was very dangerous. Yeah, but I think, Joe, also, maybe the people are running them now have got better budget, so it's got a better engine yes. at the back of it than it yeah. had. It's probably got newer in gearbox internals. It's got better tyres on it and all that sort of stuff. Now, three years ago, the previous Monaco Historic, uh, in that uh, Serie G race, exactly the same situation. Martin O'Connell was in the 
um, ATS, which was a German wheelmaker. Like they were a small Formula One team, but they built this uh, D4 car, which um, was a straight copy of the Williams FW07, really. And I think they went through that year three different designers or engineers. But anyway, Martin O'Connell, the, the Midlands driver, um, got into this thing on very wet and damp track, and and he beat all the good, you know, the Williams FW7-07s and all the decent cars because, A, the car was prepared better and also he's a superb driver as well. But mm. so that's one of the really interesting things about the Monaco Historic. Cars that weren't brilliant in period um, now sort of come into their own. Uh, just as a little aside, and back in 1970, I ran the Factory March Formula 3 team. It was the first year that March came into being. And as well as Formula 1, they built Formula 2 cars, Formula 3 cars. Um, I ran the Factory Formula 3 team. And frankly, the car wasn't very good, although we did a lot of testing. And I think the best result we ever had was fourth. But two years ago, in the classic one-litre Formula 3 championship, one of the cars that I actually ran, still in its red and white uh, Patonia team March colours, actually won the championship in several races. Wow. <laughs> Which, wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, um, we had all the best engines uh, but um, back then. But yeah. uh, obviously, obviously, you know, it was a driver that made the difference. Yeah. Um the, the the drivers do make a difference, Andrew. But that event is all about the cars, isn't it? And it's it's all right. It's it's great to see the likes of Jean Alessi stepping in. Um, I suppose as to just to to ask you one final question about the weekend. I think your co-commentator Bruce Jones asked, or was it Hindoff that your co-commentator Hindoff asked? Okay, which car would you have? So I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make this harder than than. I'm not just gonna ask you which car you would have from a particular. Uh, category that race, but out of the whole event, if you could walk away with one of those cars, which one would it be? Uh, got to be why? Yeah, got to be the Maserati 250F, I think. <laughs> but, you know, absolutely classic front-engine Formula One car, and we saw obviously one performing very well. And such famous people. I first first got interested in motor racing. Um, you know, that was the sort of car that I watched. Being a bit of an old what's it. Um, so I think that would be we would be it. But of course we have had the uh, the Spanish guy winning both in that and in the 300s Maserati, which was a sort of sports car version of that 250. And I think I wouldn't mind one of those either in the collection. I'd build a special garage for it. Even. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you would. Um, and mine would be a Shadow DN5, but that's oh, for really? a yeah, absolutely. The UOP Shadow DN5 back in the day from 1975 I, season. I mean, Tom Price. Yeah, there was two or three there, but some of them had that wonderful red and orange sort of stripes down the side, which was yeah. a brilliant livery, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was kind of so plain. It was so simple and plain. Uh, it, it, but it, for me, I, and I think, I think probably for the same reason you've chosen the uh, the 250F, it's uh, comes from a period of time where we were just discovering the sport and getting involved with the sport as a uh, and reading about it and watching it and I suppose the rose tinted glasses come on and I, I just love the shadow yeah. DN5. Yeah, it was a very good car and Tony Southgate, you know, who designed it, did a great job. Just one final thought, I think, Joe, on on the Monaco historic was the fact that you can see the evolution of the Formula One car through that race meeting, and that's what yeah. I think is probably. Uh, the thing you love the most about it. Do you think in 20 years we're going to see uh, Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes being wheeled out, Charles Leclerc's Ferrari being wheeled out in 25 years, 30 years? 
Not a chance. You need a computer room <laughs> full of boffins to start those things. I mean, that's that, just to start them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it did say on the broadcast. I think they could probably go forward one more group because the cars still wow. more or less start, you know, on a button with a bit of a, a bit of fuel sprayed down the uh, injection trumpets to get them going. Uh, but after that, you know, computers took over. Yeah. I mean, we do some more, see more modern uh, cars. Uh, Formula One cars than that running, but I think they could put through a, a very good grid of cars from eighty to eighty six or something like that. Uh, yeah. and maybe they will. And just on that, I would like to see them go back to the Formula Junior race rather rather than the sports car event. The other thing that I did say on the broadcast: you can see all those mechanical components working. You know, yeah. when they brake, you can see the nose dive down. You can see the suspension working. Uh, and it's just the magic of Formula One that I grew up on, that you grew up on, that's rather different these days, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I expect young kids probably still think it's absolutely marvellous, these latest cars. And they've certainly been racing well this year, haven't they, the first two races. But nevertheless, um, to me, it's much much more visceral, the, the whole the whole Formula One scene back then. And, um, yeah, I love doing the broadcast. And uh, I hope we'll be there next year, you know, with an old glass of uh, Chablis sitting by the harbour when the racing's not on. <laughs> I'm op- and I, I hope I'm opening the bottle for you, Andrew. Always you, a pleasure Dave. to talk to you, Andrew. I'll, I'll speak to you very soon. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. So, Joe, that was a, a huge, huge treat to talk to Andrew Marriott. And I think we were all pretty green with envy about him uh, him being that close to the action. It's always a pleasure to talk to Andrew at any time, isn't it? But straight off the back of the Monaco Historics, where he was a big part of it, I thoroughly enjoyed the TV coverage uh, from the event. And I was captivated by, by the whole thing. And uh, Andrew mentioned that, you know, there's a possibility... Let's hope there's a possibility, I should say, of us all being there next year because we're, we're quite lucky. It's uh, There's going to be a back-to-back Monaco historic. And talking of historics, it's uh, it's now 26 years, would you believe, since the, uh, the 1995 Le Mans 24 Hour Race, which was won by the amazing, mind-blowing McLaren F1 GTR. Your memories of... The McLaren F1, I mean, it was, it was just such a special car, wasn't it? it? It's become a bit of an icon, hasn't it? And in that sort of mid-90s period of sports car racing, for me, the fact that the car visually wasn't too far removed for the road going, from the road-going version, it was, you know, you had a radio under the skin of the car. Before they start putting the long tails on, in the later 90s, mm. uh, the, car looked very, the car looked very similar to its road-going version. And because it was simply, it was a road car. I mean, Golden Murray designed and built the car without ever intending to race the car. It was just seeing how great the car was. And it was it was so innovative, wasn't it, when he, when he built that car for the road. The centre driving seat was pure race car concept. Um, the context of the of the road going car was 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 uh, he he might say he didn't intend to make it into a race car, develop it into a race car, but <laughs> I think by fitting the driver in the middle for for weird purposes, kind of uh, certainly was a big clue. Uh, maybe not. Um, I've got a, a really it's a it's more of a road car, a, a McLaren F1 road car story, but um, and it involves Ron Atkinson, uh, also well known Mister Bean. Um, 
And it was when Rowan was was driving in the uh, or racing, I should say, in the uh, Aston Martin Owners Club events. He was racing an Aston DBR two, and when I first met Rowan Atkinson in a pit in the pit lane of I forget where, um, when I when I approached him with a microphone, he he said to me, um, "What are you going to ask me?" And I says, "I'm going to ask you how your qualifying went." He says, oh, "All right." He says, "You're not going to ask me anything about like sort of the my my you know my my day job." And I said, no, 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 no. And he says, oh, good. He says, I like to keep a low profile. I really enjoy uh, coming to race meetings and keeping a low profile and sort of staying out the way. And and he kind of did. You know, he would always be in the sort of the far off end of the paddock and closeted out the way because he was such a he is such a, a celebrity. So um, I remember I was I was walking down the Central Avenue at Croft at an Aston Martin racing meeting with Snowy, Peter Snowden. And um, into the through the through the main gate directly in front of us was this maroon-coloured McLaren F1, and this must have been this must have been late nineties. And seeing a McLaren F1 in the flesh was very rare uh, on the road. That is very rare, certainly in my part of the world. And uh, it was like, oh my god! And the, everybody just sort of turned. And there was this huge crowd that just turned and looked at this maroon-coloured McLaren F1 as it burbled up the Central Avenue into Croft Circuit. <laughs> and I looked, and I pointed, and I said to Snowy, that's Rowan Atkinson. That's Rowan Atkinson keeping a low profile. <laughs> He's keeping a low profile, coming into a racetrack, driving a bright maroon-red McLaren F1. And, and, and that just, you, you couldn't. I mean, he completely contradicted himself keeping a low profile. You can't keep a low profile in a McLaren F1. No, that's great. Thank you. Jim Roller, the, the, the whole thing about the, the McLaren GTR, it, just, it was just so special and such a special time, wasn't it? Well, it certainly was, Paul. To me, it was the first of the real supercars, wasn't it, of the, of the modern era? Um, it yeah. was, um, as, as Joe said, to me, the thing that made me just twist sideways on it was that the driver was in the middle of the car. I mean, there is no practical road-going application for putting the driver in the middle of the car other than this is the badass car of, of, of its era. The other thing that it did to me was it gave sports car racing, which was the the, the GTR, the, the movement of the car from the road to um, – actual racing came at a time when McLaren was at some of its highest uh, prestige. And so when McLaren brought that car into sports car racing, it gave sports car racing a, a, a boost of legitimacy during a time when Porsche was pretty much going through the motions and uh, other sports car manufacturers had just kind of Sports car racing had become soft. I mean, BPR at the time was probably the of the production-based cars was the uh, most popular, probably the most prominent series. And at Le Mans, you had the world sports cars, and it was just a it was a mishmash time for sports car racing. And the GTR kind of gave it a focus and gave it a, a legitimacy and a little cachet that it had been losing. 
for two or three years since the end of the GTP era, which was 93 or so. So this was, this was a much needed uh, shot in the arm for sports car racing. And, and they just looked so great as well, which was oh, awesome. an additional thing. Talking of the central driving position, talking about just how special that was, that uh, Paul Jurd actually got to go and sit in one. I'm actually sat in McLaren GTR, chassis number 24R, the uh, red and white liveried Emka car. And um, it's actually a feat just to get into this car and sit in the cockpit. I'm six foot two, so probably, possibly not ideally built to be a GT driver. But even I had to have instruction on how to sit on one of the carbon fibre sponsors to my left, almost fall into the seat and then swing my feet round into the pedal box just to get into the central driving position of this car. And looking around me, it is just carbon fibre everywhere. The panel just inches above my head. The roof panel is carbon fibre. Every bulkhead, the floor, the control panel to my right, which is extensively covered in switches. And it is a huge number of switches. Looking from the top, there's four options on engine mapping from uh, labour from plus three to minus 15 fuel conservation, I'm assuming. We've got pumps, fuel pumps, I've got mirror. I've got electric mirror control. There's McLaren for you. Um, master switches, screen heating, wipers, etc., etc. Buttons, a whole cascade of them tomorrow. Just to the left of that, falling quite nicely to hand actually, is the gear stick with its uh, purple top, almost the size of a billiard ball, possibly. Beautifully machined gear stick. Again, and to the right of that, got the steering wheel quite close to me. This is obviously a car where you need a little bit of force to turn the steering wheel. I've got my arms bent, almost not quite a NASCAR driving position, but certainly not the single-seater arms straight out. And another thing that is springing to mind, we're here at Silverstone. On what isn't a warm spring day, I'm sat here with the left-hand door of the car wide open, and I'm already getting hot sat in here. The uh, view out the windscreen is quite extensive, actually. It is a good view. The wheel arches aren't that high. Nose of the car does disappear down from sight. But everything does fall nicely to position. The steering wheel, my thumb's falling into that uh, quarter to three position that you have. And there's four buttons on the steering wheel, including a drinks button as well as the radio to talk to the pits. So we're looking around. We've got the roll bar above my head. It's a very snug seat. Longer I'm sat here, actually, admittedly I'm not wearing overalls, I'm not wearing a crash helmet, but it is a comfortable place to be. How comfortable would it would they be actually taking this car around a circuit with the G-loads coming through your body, the heavy acceleration and the usually phenomenal stopping capability of even a 1990-spec GT car like this probably does take some getting used to. But as a rare opportunity to sit in a car with a Le Mans history, a car that is instantly recognisable, it's um, not a bad place to be. Now, Paul, as, as you said, when you were in the car, I mean, you're, you're six feet two, but it was a pretty tight fit, I imagine. It was actually. And, and there's a particular technique for actually getting into the car because, of course, it's got this central driving seat. So you just don't open the door and there's the seat right in front of you. And I was fortunate in having this um, few moments of um, a quick crash course in how to get in, which is effectively <laughs> you actually back into the car. So you're sitting on this carbon fiber bulkhead and then you swing your legs round. So they tuck under the steering wheel, at which point you do a little slide, which sounds really uncomfortable. You actually then plop quite nicely into the steering wheel and suddenly everything's in place. And one of the most amazing things about being in the car was 
everything was just in the right place. You know, I'd never even sat in it before, but you know, the gear stick felt in the right, everything just felt that this was a place you could spend a lot of time in, which of course, you know, the car came forth at Le Mans in 98 and they did spend a lot of time in it. Yeah. And, and GTRs generally, of course, crossed the line first. So yeah, it was, it was a road car, but it was a race car. And I'm, I'm intrigued to, uh, and very jealous, I have to say, of your time in that car. Now, I've spent many hours in the last few days with my head stuck in Mark Cole's new book about the McLaren F1 GTR. And I spoke to him about this huge piece of work that he's done, which features all 28, believe it or not, GTRs in fine detail with their original race history right the way up to date. So there's nothing about these cars that you don't know. And hearing Mark talk about this uh, this labour of love was fascinating. Mark, welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be with you. And um, yeah, as you, as you say, it's been, a, it's been a massive undertaking, this book. Two volumes, covers uh, 700 pages almost. And uh, it has really been one of the one, one of my opus works, I think, of, of all the stuff I've done over the years. It's probably the book I'm the most proud of. Looking at those original 1995 cars, it's amazing how little the Peter Stevens road car design changed when they first created the GTR. Yeah, I think there's a very good reason for that, that Gordon Murray got it right first time out. There was some obviously some tweaks over the years. For instance, they, they made the tails longer in um, 97, but generally the car was good from the word go. And his, his whole idea was to have the ultimate driver's car that didn't need electronic aids, that didn't need all the gizmos um, to help help the driver. Let the driver do the work. You know, he had a beautiful BMW V12 engine sitting in the back there, had a nice gearbox, um, and he had a car that handled from day one as, as a road car. And then, of course, the really big story about this was that Gordon had never, ever intended this car for racing. It was just the ultimate road car. And it's Ray Bellum and Thomas Bichur who were uh, rivals in the BPR series in 1994, both driving Porsches, they decided they wanted some action in these McLarens for 1995. So it's those two who drove the whole of this GTR program. They took Jeff Hazel on board. Jeff, of course, famous for running Williams, for running Spice in Group C. And uh, Jeff, one of the one of the best organizer stroke engineers in the business. He went with Ray and with Thomas to Gordon Murray, and of course, they had to go to Ron Dennis of McLaren and sell mm. them to them as, as a race car. Going back to those early days, um, do you truly believe that Gordon Murray had no intention of racing the car when he first designed the F1? Because he's he's a racer through and through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he designed the car at the time he was at McLaren on the Formula One program. So I think it's quite disingenuous that, to say that he he... he had no in, no <laughs> intention of ever going on a track. I think probably he was just 
sort of covering all bases by saying that because once they started the conversion to race car and it was a very very simple conversion there very little work had to be done bumped the price up a bit the car suddenly became a million dollars that was the price that was agreed um between ray bellum and ron dennis but then when other people started queuing up for it the price of course came down as they built more units and uh, we finished up by the end of the program three-year program 28 cars 26 of which were raced only two of them never raced one was chassis number nine which went to uh, brunei um the sultan of brunei had it in his collection and the other one chassis number 10 which nick mason acquired and of course that was used as a test car but was never ever raced and uh, nick mason of pink floyd still has that car to this day yeah and, and thank goodness he does get it out from time to time and uh, and we all have the the joy of seeing that once in a while at least uh, but from previous encounters that i've had with gordon murray i i know that he's, he's actually very proud of never throwing anything away that he he keeps every bit of paper every document he's got the paper that was his original sort of Lotus 7 lookalike in South Africa and and everything since. So when you were doing your research, that must have been a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had huge access to everything. Gordon was really helpful. Peter Stevens was also extremely helpful. Peter was involved in the, the design of the body shape, the aerodynamics of the F1 road car. And in fact, he interestingly, he left McLaren before the GTR program started. But then he then came back to it through Dave Price Racing, David Price Racing, running uh, the West cars and the Harrods cars um, needed needed Peter's aerodynamic help. And those two cars went down a different route to the rest of the McLarens. They made very subtle changes, which Peter made uh, and the book includes apart from murray's original designs and, and work it's got a lot of drawings from peter stevens on how he thought the car should have looked and one of the most interesting pictures is from the road car program when he put forward the idea of what a race car might look like uh, in bmw colors and that was long before um ray bellum and thomas Bashir came on the scene so peter had actually preempted that and uh, of course as they say the rest is history you know, I'm, I'm pleased you mentioned that, Mark, because that, I absolutely agree, is one of the most fascinating pictures in your book, is, uh, is, that, is that original F1 with the McLaren, with the BMW stripes up the side. And that kind of made me start to think, well, how serious were they about that, about not racing it? But I think the, the other thing that I find interesting is that you're saying about driver involvement with the road car, the original road car, and then on into the GTR. But would it be fair to say this is the last of the analog GT cars? I think it will have to be. I mean, I know, I know Gordon's come up with a, some more designs since then, and he, he's tried to keep them more analog. But no, you're absolutely right, I think. This is probably the last genuine analog road car that is capable of, of being raced at that level, particularly winning Le Mans. I mean, you know, there's only three cars in history that have uh, won Le Mans on their debut. Obviously, the first ever Le Mans, 23, when the Shenado Aka uh, won. Then, of course, Ferrari in 1949. That was their debut race. They won. And then McLaren in 95. So that says so much about, you know, how good these road cars were and became race cars. Yeah. And 
and quite clearly and that was one of the great Le Mans of history 1995 yeah. uh, and that it was it was up in the air until the very end, as as we well know. But I'm interested, you say, about Ray Bellum and Thomas Boucher going to Gordon and then to Ron Dennis. Uh, do you think that that would have been a hard sell for Ron to say, we want to race this car? Uh, Ron was dead against the idea. He didn't want it until the moment that Ray said, um, Ray, Ray Bellum said to Ron, Ron, if you don't do it, we'll go and get it done elsewhere. And at that moment, all the alarm bells started ringing. <laughs> Ray, Ray will quite happily tell you this story. Ray holds nothing back. Um, I started doing this book in July 2019, and I had quite a long list of people to see. Amongst them was Ray, who lives in Monaco. And I went down uh, to Monaco on the last day of February 2020. So how was that the timing? because all the shutters came down, what, two weeks later? And I sat there with Ray for two days, and we went through all his observations, a lot of the stuff unprintable, but Ray never holds back, you know. But he, he loves to tell this story about, he had run over a barrel on that. If you don't do it, we'll go somewhere else. Love it. Absolutely love it. And, uh, yeah, I, I suppose the, um, the few words of a million dollars helps as well. <laughs> <laughs> And Tom, Thomas is the same. Tom, Thomas, um, you know, a banker from Cologne in Germany, um, quite quite a successful amateur racer in his own right. He and John Nielsen have been racing um, Lamborghinis to start with together, then moved on to Porsches in the 1994 BPR series. And that basically is when they, they both, he and Ray Bellum, said, we want something a, a little bit more powerful, a bit more, a bit different from the Porsches. And, and of course, the McLaren, drop right into their laps. So the, the timing couldn't have been better. And it's the BPR series, just to, to remind your listeners, uh, was the series created by Jürgen Barth, Stefan Rittel, Patrick Pater in 1974 to give gentlemen racers a chance to go GT racing. But not only that, Jürgen Barth, who was the customer manager of Porsche, saw this as a chance to sell Porsches at a time that the bottom had completely dropped out of GT racing you know, Group C had finished, Le Mans was in a mess, they had falling royal figures as it went along. And then suddenly BPR comes along, which Alan Berto from the Automobile Club de l'Ouest, the organisers of Le Mans, he embraced this because he could see a lot of entries um, in this BPR series. And that, of course, is basically what recreated Le Mans, gave them all their their numbers back and ultimately became the FIGT series. So it's... The fact the McLaren arrived at the right moment in 1995 really boosted everything they were doing. And I I know that the ACO wasn't too happy about a GT car winning in 95. They wanted a prototype to win. But as you say, it was one of the most amazing Le Mans in history. It was so wet throughout. And I know you're going to be talking to Derek Bell about it, so I won't take anything away from Derek. But he talking about driving in those conditions with his son, Justin, you know, that, that's that's worth a book in itself. Just that. <laughs> yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. And and clearly it's it was one of the great ones. It's going off on a tangent a bit here, Mark, but I've never quite understood the ACO's uh, reluctance to see a GT car win overall at the Le Mans 24 hour race because it adds a, a tremendous um, piquancy to 
to the event. And if you think back to 79, when the Whittingtons and, and Klaus Ludwig won, and that uh, you know, at those times, that was another brilliant, exciting race. And it's, it has always seemed to me, and, and you are very, very experienced at the moment, but it's always seemed to me to be a bit of a... Um, a false, a false aspiration to try and always have the top class win. Yeah, I mean the the ACO are law unto themselves. You know, they they decide, they call the tune, they they have who they want. Um, you know, they've had ill-fated attempts to try and control speeds and lap times. I can remember Jean-Marie Bolestra getting up years and years ago and saying there will never be a lap time below. Um, the, get below the 32nd mark at Le Mans. Of course, it didn't take that long. No. <laughs> Audi and Co were dipping into the 20s very, very quickly. But I, I don't think they quite saw the GT, the Porsche GTs as as GT cars. I think they saw them more as Group Six cars and uh, and, and prototypes that still under a body. But yeah, you know, the whole thing about the McLaren was it looked exactly like the road car, and it was the road car underneath they might have carbon brakes they might have had some aero tweaks but basically at the end of the day it was the road car underneath that racing shell now my favorite chapter of the whole two volumes of your book is the team that never was <laughs> uh, in which you you talk about the, the victory in 1995 the non-existent team of uh, Kokusai Kaihatsu, am I saying that reasonably right? Absolutely right. Um, who who fielded the car for a mysterious Japanese sponsor who made a very late decision to want to compete at the Le Mans 24 hour, hour race. So, your feeling, Mark, was this really a works entry? Um, do you want me to be honest? Yes. It was a works entry. I mean, Jeff Jeff Hazel himself will, will admit now that uh, you know he, he was he was given orders. David Clark was sales director of McLaren at that time. David had huge connections in Japan. He knew all the right people. Ron Dennis um, had big connections in Japan, obviously through Honda itself. Mm. And you know they they were approached by the owner of the Wano Clinic, which was a, a Japanese circumcision clinic, amongst other things. Hence that car being called Snippet. <laughs> <laughs> and they just want they really wanted to humor the japanese and nobody else would accept the fairly low money i think it was twenty thousand dollars that was being offered you know to be on other people's cars they all had their own agenda you know you had gulf you had harrods you had west you had all these people no thank you we've got we've got our own sponsors we don't need more so in, in a way mclaren was painted into a corner in that because ron dennis had promised um, the Japanese that they could have a, a presence on the car there and they had to do it in the end by taking the old mule which is sitting in the corner of the workshop chassis number one um, which was absolutely been flogged to death by John Nielsen and others over the uh, few months leading up to Le Mans um, and Jeff Hazel was given the car said you're going to have to rebuild it make it race ready and we'll go racing and Paul Lanzanti who'd never ever been to Le Mans uh, was given the job of doing that. Paul, a very clever engineer, very good team manager. Um, he'd been 
running GTs, he, uh, Porsches, you know, he had had experience, but had never, ever been to Le Mans. And Jeff Hazel had to sit down with him and, and brief him, basically, on what you need to do to win Le Mans. Jeff had done it, of course, in Group C two days, yeah. exactly what to do. Paul, to his credit, took that on board. He got a lot of help on board from borrowing two uh, stuff, tools, gear from people like Tyrrell. Harvey Postlethwaite was very much involved in helping them. He got the right engineers on, had his own little engineering team, just four people, one of whom was Soames Langton. Now, Soames was an amateur Porsche driver, but he put um, Soames in charge of making tea for the team, holding the ropes back at the pit stops. And so Soames himself uh, played a big part in that. But apart from three other engineers, that's all the staff that Paul had for Le Mans. So they had to take McLaren engineers on board. And I think that's what the other teams were looking at. They looked at that. They didn't like it. Um, they had been promised. Ray Bellum in the book says, you know, Ron Dennis promised me in writing that they would never uh, rival run a car against its own customer teams um okay point came during the race where ray had crashed in the wet where um other cars were having struggles and this black wayno clinic car was coming through quicker and quicker and quicker in the hands of jj loto and at one point we got to the point where ray bellum said i'd rather a mclaren won than a mclaren didn't win because it's going to increase the value of all our cars. So at that point, I think all the, the mumbling and the grumbling stopped. <laughs> ever, ever the businessman, Ray Bellum. <laughs> but yeah, I just find it fascinating that at the time, we we all read the stuff that said, no, this is categorically not a works car, that uh, it's it's absolutely you know, run by Lanzante and and nobody else and nobody else was involved. Um, and and I think I think everybody saw through that up to a yeah. point. But it's interesting with, with the amount of research that you've done that you've you've seen that as being being the way it was. Yeah, Paul is absolutely clear when I talked to him. He, his briefing was not to try and race the customer cars. He said, let them get on with it. You you just hang back and just give the Japanese what they want. And so Paul went there with no intention of winning the race. In fact, all the McLarens went there thinking they not didn't have a chance to, to win because the Achilles heel of this, this car, of course, is the gearbox. And it wasn't going to last in these conditions for 24 hours. Remember, these cars had only ever done four-hour races, BPR races, and it was it was... You know, it was a black art now. Transmissions lasting for 24 hours when they'd never been run that far. Um, fortunately, it was so wet that there was no strain put on the transmissions. And that's why the majority of the gearboxes survived. There was another hiccup in those boxes about the uh, the clutch release uh, mechanism, which a lot of the teams changed at the, on the advice of McLaren, but some didn't. Uh, but for, unfortunately for the... Japanese that car the number one car had had the, the slight change made and Peter Stevens had actually put a picture um, done a drawing for us in the book about exactly what that was all about you can't really explain it over the air but uh, when you see it in the book but interestingly Paul Anzanti having won Le Mans with that car against all the expectations has never ever been back to Le Mans for the 24 hours he's been back for the classic um, Harvey Postlethwaite when Paul returned um, their, their jacking gear to Tyrrell, he said to 
said to Paul, I've got to go back and uh, said to Harvey, I've got to go back and do it again next year. Harvey said, don't. You'll never improve on what you've done this year. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's so true. And that is so true. Um, very cynical, but it's so true. Well, I think just to underline about how fabulously successful McLaren's been, this car had a history of uh, 11 years of racing, 1995 right through to 2005, because the last five years of its race, it was they're racing in Japan. I think people overlook that. 325 race starts during those 11 years by McLarens. They won Le Mans in 95. 97, they finished second and third and first and second in GT. And that's, a, that's another result people overlook. The only car that beat them was Tom Christensen's Yes, Walkinshaw Porsche. And that, that was a great golf victory to, to win GT that year. Um, they won 41 of the 131 races they started and took two international titles. That was the, the BPR in 95 and 96. Two British titles, that was 96 and 98. And of course, won the Japanese championship in 1996. That was the Lark car, which um, was driven by David Brabham, Ralph Schumacher and John Nielsen and co. Um, those two Lark cars battled that whole season. So it's very, very interesting. That first win for McLaren was Jerez in 1993 with Bellum and Maurizio Sala. And the last win was 2001, as late as 2001. That was at Mina in Japan with Andre Kuta and Hideki Okada. So it's had a huge, huge racing history over those years. And until Mercedes came onto the scene and Porsche, of course, Porsche with the with, with its GT, um, the McLaren ruled the roost, certainly for those those first three years, 95, 96, 97. Then it all gradually slipped away from them. And it's it's fascinating that it had that length of of life because racing cars, even GT cars, don't very often have that that kind of thing. But coming coming more up to date, obviously any GTR now is hugely valuable, and we know that. And I found it interesting going through the the second volume of your book, which is where you talk about it, each individual chassis. And that looking at the cars as they are now, quite a lot are not in what we might consider to be the original livery. In fact, there is one car which is in the Weno Clinic colours of the Le Mans winner, with some justification, but raced in other colours. And it's, it's interesting to see what some people have done, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think what you're talking about there would be chassis number two, um, which was raced, of course, at Suzuka in Wayno Clinic colours. Uh, that was the golf cart of um, Bellum and um, and uh, mm. not Bellamand. Yeah. Uzo Sayama of uh, Wayno Clinic. He wanted that car to go to the Suzuka Thousand Kilometres after Le Mans. It couldn't take that car, so Rare Bellum agreed to have their golf car sprayed in Wayno Clinic colours. Golf. But Suzuka wasn't actually on the golf um, schedule that year. So Maurizio Sakaya joined uh, Bellum and Sala and they won that thousand kilometers. Now, of course, to have the car in that color, genuinely, it's, you know, it's, it's not a fake, it's genuine. No. That's how it won at, at uh, the Suzuka thousand kilometers in yeah. And most most of the cars have now been converted to 
a modicum of road legality, uh, which fully understand because owners will want to get out there and enjoy them and to parade them on the road. But uh, some of those have also lost their livery, haven't they, over the years? Yeah, yeah I mean, the own, owners choose what, what, what their favourite livery is, you know, so it, it's quite an interesting thing, that, isn't it? The, um, you, you mentioned about converted to road use. They, it's funny, Paul Lanzanti, Dean Lanzanti, who, who run their separate companies um, and specialise in all this, they, they just like to say they like to say ro road prepared you know <laughs> in actual fact apart from just swapping the carbon brakes if, if the car had them in, in racing history back to steel brakes because carbon brakes you can't use on the road obviously um there's very very little they need to do passenger seat perhaps um not, not all of them had that but uh it's up to the owners. They they choose that they'll try and stay faithful to the car's history. But during those years, the cars are racing. You know, they sometimes have three or four different liveries over the seasons, and um, yeah, that's that's that to me is also absolutely fascinating. Of course, it made my job all that much harder trying to trace which car was where. You know, we were talking about twenty eight. Uh, F1 GTRs, and don't forget, it's, it's not. We're not just talking about 28 GTRs. There are 106 McLaren F1s were built in total, and some of the road cars people have put into racing livery colours because because they wanted to. <laughs> of course, yeah, just to make, as you say, your your job a bit harder. So that yeah. I have to say, it, it is actually probably my uh, my favourite bit of the book. Um, on the same note, I think it was interesting to see. Your your story about Ray Bellum um, having his original 1995 car not only converted for road use but um, also driving it from the UK to Le Mans one year. Yes, that that was a great story, wasn't it? And I, I remember seeing that car uh, when it arrived in Le Mans. I, I I must have been on the way into the circuit, and suddenly I realised that I was following a, a genuine GT. GR cut into the circuit. <laughs> the, the photographs in the book of him stopping at um, a payage, you know, to to pay the pay the toll for the auto route and boarding the uh, Eurostar tunnel yeah. thing. That is great. I mean, this, this is just what it, it said. I mean, Ray loved that sort of thing. They actually did that feature with Auto Express. They took Matthew Carter with them, who uh, wrote a brilliant story on it, which uh, a lot of which we we used in the book as you'll, you'll have seen um but this is this is the great thing you know you mentioned the word mclaren to everyone and everyone suddenly lights up and say oh what a beautiful car that was the f1 you know it's mm. incredible i mean interesting you see quite a lot of mclarens on the road now not f1s but you know the modern day mclarens the, the 720s etc and but it, for some reason the f1 still catches the imagination of everybody and and I, I think it's just great, and I'm so pleased, you know, to see that McLaren in Formula One is is now appears to be on a resurgence, you know, and they've got a great great driver in uh, Mr. Norris, haven't they? And I mean, this, this yeah. is, is so good. You mentioned about the value of these cars. Well, I mean, we're, we're talking now when they go to sales in America before the lockdown, they were starting to hit twenty million dollars, you know, for a car that originally cost. In the region of eight hundred and fifty thousand so, <laughs> pounds, twenty-six years. It's twenty-five years, remember, since uh, last year, since uh, that debut victory. Um, no, don't don't say that. It, it was it was two years at most, Mark. <laughs> but unfortunately for us, you know, the whole book was timed to be launched at Le Mans, 
2020, last June, and it never happened. And of course, yeah. there were no spectators permitted when the race was held in September, nor were media. Pre- I, I wasn't allowed to go. We had to do the Eurosport coverage from Eurosport's um, London base. And so the yeah. book, we never had the chance to launch the book. After that, Porter Press um, were going to launch it at the Goodwood Festival. That too went by went by the way, didn't it? And uh, so it's just been one of these books which people like you have been helping us, you know, just to bring it to the attention of everybody. I think it's a fabulous book, a thousand copies um, as a limited edition. And there's another 30 copies which are being sold as a, a collector's edition. But I, I must say at this moment, a big thank you to Philip Porter of Porter Press because he's believed in me. I, this is the fourth book I've done with them. And he has been so good. And I'd like to thank my editors as well, Quentin Spurring and Mark Hughes, and particularly John Brooks, We've got 775 colour shots in that book, and the vast majority of those are by John Brooks from his time. Oh, he's a brilliant, brilliant photographer. He he was there from the start, along with me, in the BPR series. I was working for Eurosport then. We started broadcasting it from race one at Jerez in 1993, and John was always there, always worked with John, and uh, he is just such a brilliant photographer. And uh, I think this book is as much a, a tribute to him as it is to the F1 GTR. Talking of tributes, Mark, I want to give you a, a pers- personal thanks, which is that you start your book on, in Volume 1 with a profile and a tribute to Bruce McLaren. And I think that is so important. We... You, you mentioned about the modern day McLaren and all that that means. And we look back to the F1 GTR and we look at the, the car as it is in modern day Formula One, but none of that would have happened without the little chap from New Zealand. And that Bruce McLaren, and I was delighted that when I first opened the book, the first thing I saw was a was a picture of Bruce because I think that is so important to understand your roots. Yeah, I mean Bruce is always my hero. I mean, I I, I just love the McLaren Can-Am cars. Um, I was racing in sports car racing in Britain myself at the time, but Bruce just to me epitomised everything good about driver constructors and like Jack Brabham, you know, was able to to win a car he was driving that he'd built, and that, that to my mind was just what motorsport is all about and um, i also had the, the chance I, I mentioned it in the book I, I went down to goodwood when mclaren were testing and i went with denny Helm in his car i think it must have been the um i forget which, which year exactly that moment but we went around goodwood and i, I it was just such an experience so i say i was racing myself at that time but to go around in a Can-Am cart with Denny Hull. <laughs> a whole new world. It was quite, quite extraordinary. Just tragic that Bruce was killed by just such a simple error as the rear bodywork coming off for some reason hadn't been properly secured. Uh, but I, I think probably what a way to go. You know, he was doing what he loved and he was at the top of his game and uh, had nothing to, more to prove, did he? I think you're absolutely right. And, and that, as I say, thank you for identifying that as, as part of the front of the book. Finally, I've got a couple of questions for you about your own personal views on the GTR. Uh, that we saw the car when it came out in 95, really pretty much identical to the, to the road cars 
uh, certainly the same same style of bodywork and everything else, and they they evolved into the long tail cars um, with the with the different nose looked a very different car. Aesthetically, which would be your favourite of those two? What of the colour schemes or the? No, no, no. The the uh, the, the car design itself. Oh, the design. Yeah. I, I don't think I think it's perfect. I've never seen a more perfect shape for a car. You know, as schoolboys, Paul, you and I, I'm sure, used to doodle in class and draw um, GT cars, racing cars. And, and the cars I drove, you know, I'm, I'm going back to the 60s for me now, we yeah, always, always seem to be that sort of shape. A McLaren, it's just, it is the perfect shape. And, of course, at the time it first came out, it didn't have all the aerodynamic appendages that the race cars then developed, you know. It was a very, very clean design. It was beautifully done. That was Peter Stevens' work. You know, Gordon Murray was, was the designer for everything underneath. But Peter Stevens was responsible for the shape and the bodywork. And I don't think it can be bettered. Um, people will tell you the Ferrari GT, the 250 GTO is the best looking car in the world, or maybe the Jaguar E-Type. Um, I, I still think the McLaren F1, to my mind, whether it's a GTR or just an F1, it is probably still one of the best-looking cars ever built. I absolutely agree with you. And I, I think if you look at something like the 250 GTO, that is beautiful. Uh, and, and you could put that in an art gallery and it's beautiful. I think with the GTR, it's a bit like the Porsche 935, particularly the K3, that there's no way that a K3 is beautiful. But it is so purposeful that it absolutely looks beautiful because of that. And I think for me, the F1 and, and latterly the F1 GTR falls into that same category. You think so? Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. I think colour's got a lot to do with it as well, you know, what the, what the colour schemes were. And to my mind, the, the ultimate McLaren F1 GTR is the Harrods car. I mean, that just... To my mind, was the perfect colour thing for that car. Peter Stevens will agree with you. He ran the car, but uh, he still said, when I stood in the paddock and looked around, I still think our car was the best-looking car in the paddock. Oh, right. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much. Congratulations on this book. As I said at the top of this interview, it is a masterpiece. And I'd like to thank you for coming on to the Historic Racing News radio show to talk about the wonderful car that is the McLaren GTR. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And let's hope we're able to get back to Le Mans, you know, as as not only journalists and broadcasters, but as spectators too. Bring it on. Now, I'm not the only person who's had their head buried in a book this week, because, Paul, you've uh, you've had something which is uh, which is right up your street. It is, and it's a Formula One car by car, 1990 to 1999 by Peter Hyam. And uh, if that title sounds familiar, it's because it's now the fifth in the series of the Formula One car by car books published by Evro, and uh, each covering a decade. And this is obviously the most recent, the 1990 to the 99, and fascinating decade with just how the sport changes across those 10 years. And you go and look at it, and in the early, 43 drivers, I think, in 1990, were in cars at some point or another and wow. suddenly we get back to the you know the end of the decade and it's a totally different ball game those small teams that were coming in and out just can no longer survive in fact the only, there is a team that appears in 99 which is BAR so they were very very well funded but a decade of much change and of course much that happened you know I think everyone's well aware of uh, everything that happened in 1994 at Imola unfortunately with Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna 
But yeah, fascinating book. Peter's usual attention to detail. There is every driver in every car, if that makes sense. So he's actually researched all the pictures, found the combinations, and then there's that information on every team. And uh, yeah, you know, as, as I actually said to Peter when, when I interviewed him, it's, uh, you know, he's even nice to Andrea Moder. I thought he could have been a lot harsher. And that's sort of almost one of the comedy stories. This is a team who were fined for bringing Formula One into disrepute just by how they were acting. So, yep, tremendous book. And then I was even more pleased to actually get some time with Peter to tell me all about his latest work. We're fortunate enough to have Peter Hyam joining us, author of the Formula One Car by Car series of books, which each look at a decade of Grand Prix motorsport from 1950 onwards. And there's been an exciting new addition to that series. So, uh, hello, Peter, and tell us about the latest publication. Thanks very much for um, inviting me on. Uh, yes, the, the latest uh, instalment, the fifth of the Formula One Car by Car series, uh, is just out. It covers 1990 to 1999, so um, a very exciting era that uh, started with Senna and Prost rivalry and ended with the great battles between Schumacher and Hakkinen. So, a, a, an epic era. I think very much so. And obviously, you know, this is this is the fifth book now, so. Uh... This is the most recent decade you've covered. Did, did that make the research easier with Formula One so, so much more high profile in the 1990s? Because I'm thinking back to your book in the 1950s when, uh, you know, if you bought a Maserati 250F, you could get yourself onto a Grand Prix grid. Uh, I think it actually made it longer to research because there's much more to read. Um, I uh, And there, there are more championship races, obviously, in, in that era, 16 or 17. Um, the 50s there's a lot more sort of untold stories. The things that I really like about um, the development of Grand Prix racing is, is the quirky amateurs and, and you know, um, the back, back of the grid people and some funny stories like someone buying a Cooper in the 60s, um, transporting it to California and then deciding to enter the Mexican Grand Prix and <laughs> drove from California to Mexico City with it on a trailer. And uh, she was team manager, he was driver, and I don't think they actually started the race, but there you go. But th- that's the sort of thing that was back in those days, because, you know, we're looking at that 1990s, and so one of the things that I was really struck by was how much change there was in Formula One just in that one decade. Because looking at your book, in 1990, there were 19 teams, 40 drivers active, 40 drivers active over the season. And that's back in the days of pre-qualifying, where, you know, a team would turn up, and if they didn't get through that short pre-qualifying, their weekend was over very early on Friday morning. And yet, by the time we get to 1999, we're down to just 11 teams, and one of those started in 1999, the BAR team, and just 24 drivers. So suddenly, you know, that business aspect of Formula One seems to have changed, and much, much harder for a small team to come in. Well, there was a there was a real push to um, professionalise the sport and the grid because in the eighties you'd have people who you know wouldn't enter a race or only enter five races or whatever, and um, Formula One uh, by nineteen eighty nine had I think thirty nine cars in in the field so pre qualifying was uh, one hour on eight o'clock in the morning on a Friday um, to get through to qualifying. Um, was a you know a hard task to get out of it. A couple of teams went out of business in that winter. So in 19, uh, 1990, it was down to 35 cars at the, at the beginning of the season. And it slowly dwindled. But they brought in um, like a franchise system. So um, you, you had to have guaranteed um, budgets to be able to get into Formula One. You had 
you contractually had to turn up to every race with both cars. You had to make your own car. Um, and so, yes, by the end of the, um, the decade, you, you were down to 11, um, 11 teams, um, but a consistent grid was what was being aimed for, I believe. Do you know what? That's almost like the Andrea Moda rule, isn't it? And I was reading your section on that infamous team, who I think were actually at one point charged with bringing the sport into disrepute. I think we- they turned up. At, uh, I think they turned up at Monza and were not allowed into the paddock. Um, if, if I um, but uh, yes, it, it was it it was to try and make sure there was a basic level of professionalism within within the sport because you had Andrea Moda, you had life racing engines that hardly made it out of the pit lane. Um, and uh, that was seen to be not Formula One and not, you know, not professional. It is. And also, you know, almost one of the sadder aspects, I think, of reaching, reaching, reading your book is just seeing the, the demise of some of the great names of you know, Lotus and Tyrrell. I, I, was a, um, I was a big Lotus fan when I was growing up. So um, they're leaving, you know, the original Team Lotus um, was really sad, and it was it was a, a slow, drawn out um, uh, death by a thousand cuts. And um, I, actually, in um, uh, when they uh, were first in trouble, um, when Camel pulled out, um, and then Peter Wright and Peter Collins resurrected the team with Mika Hakkinen as a newcomer as as their sort of central driver. Um, by nineteen ninety. Two, I believe it was when uh, Johnny Herbert was in the team, and it was that year it was just really exciting um, because they were sort of punching above their weight, and um, it looked like they were, you know, they were making progress both on and off the track. Um, but it was another couple of years, and um, and you know, tight finances, and eventually they slipped off the grid. Uh, Tyrrell. Uh, had been uncompetitive for a number of years and eventually looked to sell <clears throat> Ken Tyrrell and, and sold it to um, British American Tobacco as the basis for, uh, for BAR. Uh, the strange thing, though, is BAR set up a completely new team, but I think it was uh, all part of um, an exit strategy for, for, for Ken Tyrrell, who obviously supported Formula One for so long. And it's, you know, and supported it to the extent of almost bringing drivers up through and into Formula One. Thinking back to the Jackie Stewart days, absolutely. absolutely. And, and and you know, for for a time, running the best team in Formula One. Very, very much so in the early seventies, wasn't it? So there's obviously a lot of research goes into the book. You know, you've you've got pretty much a picture of every driver and every car, if that makes sense. Even some of the ones who sort of didn't turn up that often, but uh, I always, I, I always wonder when you, you you publish a book like this, do you live in fear of the emails from uh, that picture? Wasn't the Canadian Grand Prix? The car had green wheel nuts there, not blue. You always live, always live in that that fear. I mean, the, um, it, it, it's a bit nerve wracking when it comes out because you know, you know, you've blood, sweat, and tears, but there is something in there that's going to, um, you know. Uh, turn a phrase or or a photograph that um you know hopefully everything is in there or you miss someone out i'm pretty certain i haven't because i'm fastidious about that but um there is a picture of every car um that raced in formula one during that decade with every driver so if johnny herbert has mentioned raced the lotus uh, 102d and he raced a lotus 107 in that particular season there'll be two pictures of johnny one in each car so the, 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 plan. the picture the picture research might take must take months um 
a lot of it is online now and um it it, it is the first job i do when i do one of these is um i basically work out uh output all the results in the format that they appear in the book um so that gives me the the, the picture list if you like the photo list that, that i need and then find all the photographs obviously for the 1990s it was a lot easier than the 1950s in the 1950s um the british magazines wouldn't wouldn't send a photographer to argentina for um the race because it was too expensive um if you look at a uh, a report in motorsport it probably has no pictures in there at all um so yeah and and there were local drivers who would only race in in the argentinian grand prix so that that was um that was a, a big gap to fill but um thankfully we uh, we did that's right. And I remember even back in the 70s, there used to be a whole host of drivers who'd come out for the South African Grand Prix for the local races, Paddy Driver and people like that. Absolutely. But by, by then, magazines were and photo agencies were, co- you know, were covering the whole season. So it, it is a bit better. There are one or two that were difficult to find. Um, but um, but there, there's more res- resource for that. Fantastic. Now, Obviously, you've got a background with Haymarket and that. And uh, as, as I mentioned just before we started recording, I've just literally glanced up. And one of my key books for reference is The Guinness Guide to International Motor Racing, which I've had since 1995, which has your name on the side. So you've always quite liked this analytical level of things. I, that's the first book I, um, I, I ever wrote. And uh, I did it in my spare time. Um, basically, it's it's uh, it's coverage of formula one but through to indycar nascar um you know all, all forms of racing pre-war grand prix racing which i love um and the idea was to you know the, the the ultimate reference book for um for the sport um it actually was updated uh in 2002 as the international motor racing guide uh, so uh yeah so well, i think i, want, I think i'm on ebay as we finish this conversation <laughs> good to hear so, so obviously you've gone the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and now just freshly published, we have the 1990s. Shall I ask, is it the obvious one next? Um, well, the 2000s is uh, obviously ne- next on the list, and we hope to work through um, each decade. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's interesting to see how it all develops. Um, you know, the 1990s, one thing I, I liked about it was in... Um, uh, in 1995, I took my son, um, who was then four, to the British Grand Prix for the first time. And when he came round to dinner um, uh, recently, um, in the garden, obviously, <laughs> he, uh, I said, go look up Jordan 1995. And so he, he looked it up and um, there was a picture of Eddie Irvine in, in his car. And I, and I just said, when you walked into the circuit and they were practice was going on you ran up to the fence and went Eddie Irvine as he drove past and that was a four-year-old so obviously I've, I've conditioned him well oh, that's been brought up well isn't it yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yes I think you, you get that my, my kids are so totally um, unfazed by being at a circuit having been at circuit since before they were one years old mm. yeah absolutely Peter, thank you so much for your time today. And say, if you are a fan of the fine detail of Formula One, then these books are really perfect for you. Or even if you just like to dip in and out and remind yourselves of seasons gone, they're a great addition to any bookshelf. Formula One Car by Car 1990-99 to is available from Evro Publishing, which is www.evropublishingalisoneword.com for £50. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. 
Now, with those McLaren F1 GTRs, I think you'll agree, Paul, that there were some brilliant and and very iconic liveries that came out of nowhere. That's right. Yes, and for for a car that was essentially you know designed as a road car, and I think it Gordon Murray one point said was never going to race, it looked a fantastic race car. You know, and if we think back to that 1995 when the McLaren burst onto the scene at Le Mans, you had that uh, there was a car in, in a version of the Golf livery, but with the dark blue and orange rather than the powder blue and orange. Um, Thomas Bashir's very distinctive red and white West FM liveried car. You had the almost the anti-livery of the Uwena <laughs> Clinic car, just in black with the sponsors in white. Very, it's probably you could picture lots of meetings by there by some graphic designer and thinking, oh, what? Let's just do this. But no, it looked <laughs> fantastic. But you know, I think for me, the one that always stood out was that uh, that classic Harrods livery that uh, in the in the uh, the Bell Bell and Wallace car. So we had that big green stripe up the middle, and then the yellow flanks on the car. And that, of course, was uh, was the car which, as you say, Andy Wallace drove with the father and son team of Derek and Justin Bell. And that, yeah, I think probably a fan favourite throughout the world. I spoke to Derek Bell earlier this week and asked him all about that very special Le Mans. Derek, he called to race with Justin in uh, 1995 um, with Justin and Andy Wallace. Came pretty late, didn't it? You can say that again. In, in 1994, I'd retired and I, from, uh, from Le Mans. And I just remember saying in the middle of the night to my pal David Mills, my manager, David, for God's sake, don't let me ever do this race again. Wonderful as it was, it was so wearing. And I remember it was my 24th appearance at that point, I think. So, you know, I was happy to to um, to not do any, it anymore. And of course, I didn't know where we were headed with the cars. You know, I'd been in the factory team and the 94 year was in the in the Porsche Spider, uh, the, the golf car, but it was with Robin Donovan and, Pete and a, a team. And it was lovely. We did very well. We're on the front row of the grid and finished seventh or something. So it was a good way to sort of pull out. So the next year I didn't go through my sort of routine of having a wonderful Christmas, relaxing and maybe having a week away in you know, Austria or something as one did because you sort of risked your limbs over the slopes and then was gonna, <laughs> and normally came home and and then you'll say, right, the middle of January, we've got to start getting fit again. And uh, for Le Mans, I mean, the whole build-up was for Le Mans because it's the jewel in the crown. And uh, that was really it that year. So, But that year, I wasn't going to do Le Mans in, uh, in, in, in 95. Um, and so I wasn't in that mode. And the strangest thing was I knew that Justin and Andy were driving the, uh, you know, the, the McLaren. And it was great to watch. And I was still doing stuff in America. I was still racing quite heavily, but not doing the 24 hours. And um, I think I did the 24 hours of Daytona, for example, but I, that was nothing yeah. like as hard as doing Le Mans. Or, and it wasn't a jewel in the crown. It was important, but not that important to me anyway. And um, so, and then out of the blue, Justin said, to, and Andy said, come on, Dad, you're going to have to come and do the race with us. And I, about, <laughs> for, about four weeks before. Now, I was in moderately good physical shape, but it was a mental thing, strange enough. And I went, oh, my God, I... You know, this is now May. I'm racing yeah. in five or six weeks and um, I, I've got to get myself in shape. And I haven't done that natural build up, which I used to do. I mean, it wasn't that I was out on the on the in the pubs or anything any more than I ever did have a big drink now, a beer now and again. But it was a fact that I just wasn't in my routine. And I went to Lamar in a different state of mind 
feeling that I was short circuiting it and I di I wasn't going to do well. <laughs> a little, and of course, obviously we knew the McLaren had had never done 24 hours. Well, it, at that point, it was unbeknown to me that in fact they had done a 24 hour test, but I yeah. didn't know that. We never did for years. And um, I thought, you know, what chances it got because it wouldn't even finish a six hour race, a thousand kilometer race, because it had some problems. I think I think I'm right in saying in the transmission area. And um, so I thought, well, what chance have we got? Oh, well, let's do it. It'll be great. It'll be a fabulous car to drive. Great team and lovely to drive with Justin and Andy, to be honest. And so that's how it came about. So it was it was almost an emotional thing as much as a, a career thing or anything else. Oh yeah, I couldn't I couldn't see how. Uh, I mean, we have there's, there's a thing we always used to say, and I think it came from dear old John Wire back in this, you know, in the seven early seventies was that, you know, Le Mans takes three years to win, the first year to finish, the second year to finish well, and the third year to win. That had to be your program. And I just couldn't see how this McLaren out of the blue was going to come along and and do that well, particularly as it had a record on a thousand kilometre race of not finishing. Yeah, yeah. And it uh, it wasn't a fancied runner, was it? You know, that, no. Let's face it, it was a GT anyway against exactly. the prototype. Oh, exactly. So. I, I mean, yeah, carry on. Yes. Yeah, so that yeah. was how it started. That was really how um, that I went into it with that attitude. But I mean, I wasn't any less serious or any less professional about it. Because once you sit in a car and the, you know somebody says off you go, <laughs> you know you're a race driver again and you leave all the emotion behind you. Really. Yes, it, it, I mean it must have must have been been like that that suddenly you're there and you're back at Le Mans and presumably the you know the, the years disappear and you're you're back to your first ever run. Oh yeah, but and yeah, absolutely. The, the the GT cars were pretty unfancied I think at, at that point uh, a bit like 1979 and that clearly you went into it on on that sort of basis yeah but... I, I, as far as the race was concerned if I may interrupt was I know we did practice and um I know we were like in about I think we were in the anyway we were in the top 10 I don't know where Jochen Massey was, was with his McLaren and the other guys but I know we were all pretty close but we're in the top ten, and we were quite surprised about that. But we still didn't—we still didn't have the feeling that we were going to finish. <laughs> that was the thing. So, and 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 then that was it. So we went into the race with that apprehension. You've driven so many different cars at Le Mans over the years, and uh, everything from a nine seventeen through to you know Ferraris, and obviously the Porsche years as well. But did. Did that McLaren have a feel of being a road car or was it was it a racer through and through when you got into it? Um, when uh, when I first drove it, remember, I didn't I don't think I drove it until we got to Le Mans. Am I am I right or wrong? I can't remember. I, th I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I did know the track quite well. But, um, <laughs> but Understatement um, of the year. Yeah. yeah. But um, I. I I had no impression that it was ever going to be a race car. And I guess it was amazing. I can't tell how much slower we were than the prototypes. But the fact we're in the top 10, or I know we're all three, all three, four cars were, but um, that the car was obviously pretty darn good. And I recollect the story was that they actually had to detune the car a bit because it was going to be going too fast in the straight. So I heard, but 
uh, it's sort of these things come out over the years. It was quite a while ago now. Um, yes. But um, I, as far as I knew, we, we just thought, well, we'll just do our best. And uh, I got in it and drove it. And, of course, it's so strange when you get in the car on a racetrack and it's making the right noise and you go off and it's got a wonderful gearbox and you're sort of, you know, going around those wonderful corners at speed. Um, I, I, I knew that we were, you know, the car was good. It was very good. But I didn't know, as I say, had no, as I say, I had no thoughts that we were going to finish. <laughs> but if, I did feel good. I did. But I, I guess to answer your question was that I, I, I was aware that it was easily a race car because the way it was suddenly I was sitting in a car with one seat rather than three. And, yeah. um, you know, it went like sounded like a race car and was, of course, light as we could be. And we went out and it seemed to be quick. And nobody I, really went flying by us at any point. You know, I mean, obviously, we were a bit slow into the corners than the big prototypes, but we knew that would happen. You you have to have your brain changing its attitude a bit about don't get in the way of everybody, because when you're in the outright cars, you know that nobody should be overtaking you. And if they want to, they're going to have to try really hard. But we let the others go by if they had to, because we knew they were quicker. But it, it must have been must have been a a strange thing to to have to do that having been in prototypes for so long to even look in your mirror let alone anything else yeah it it it, it it's the strangest thing i never ever really thought about it at any time remembering that my first year was in a ferrari 512 when we were you know in the top six or seven my very first time and the second time was in uh was in the ferrari daytona and the third time of course was in the 917 so i did have the three a quite an interesting situation with a car that was doing 200 mile an hour, a car that would do 190, and then a car that did 240. And <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, it was like, you know, baptism of fire, really. So <laughs> yes. I had to adapt. Whatever it was, I had to adapt. Adapted remarkably well. So yes. when I get in the... So to drive the McLaren, I adapted, you know, I mean, only a few years before the McLaren, I'd driven the little Porsche GTR. And, you know, we were like... 35th in the qualifying and but we were running fifth at eight o'clock in the morning because of the rain and the economy of fuel economy of the car but you know um you you get it's funny how you adapt straight away if somebody's coming up quick well they must be quick because they're zooming up very few cars you know i when i was in a slower car i really was in a slower car do you follow what i'm saying yeah i do and, um, and, and even that year that we're talking about 95 and 96 we were still a slower car, and the, the prototypes would zoom by us. And that must have been uh, been strange as it was. But the the day, as I remember it, the Saturday, it wasn't too bad until as darkness fell, mm -hmm. it started raining, didn't it? Yeah. And, and I, started, yeah. Raining, started raining like the end of the world. And that I, I can't imagine what's driving any sort of competitive car around Le Mans in the monsoon conditions must be like. No, it was, it, 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 well, again, I guess I'd driven several times before in faster cars in the rain. And it's all relevant, all relative, is that all, you know, the car, it, it'll do what it'll do. And if you're a good driver, you bring it to that limit, whatever it is, whether it's a Jeep or whether it's a, a you know, <laughs> yeah. 962, you, you bring it to that limit because you know what it is and you just drive it to that and you have to adapt um, as, it, as you go around. And, you know, and you, the biggest thing, of course, is that with Le Mans is that it's eight miles and water lies terribly badly in the most astonishing places. 
And the other thing, really, which is the only time I had a bit of a moment, um, was, you know, when you sort of, well, no, I had more than one moment. I did spin on <laughs> sure. But, I mean, but um, as you sort of come, is the fact that they're on the track, there are 50 cars. By by midnight, there are probably only 45 cars, and which still sounds a heck of a lot. But if you're in a group, if you're behind a group of six cars and you catch them up, let's say going through the what we know as the Porsche curves, as you come in there, the, the the five cars in front of you will actually wash a lot of the water away. Mm -hmm. So you will go through behind them, and you go, "Oh, this feels good," because there's no there's no water line because it's all been sprayed away, and and then you come round the next two lap, you get by those guys, and two laps later or something, you come round. And there's nobody in front of you. You're going like crazy. And then suddenly the car flies all over the road because the water has run back from the grass verges or from the heavy torrential rain up above. And it, the whole, every damn lap, every corner is a new experience. And I don't think people realize that. It's not like, oh, it's getting dry. That's fantastic. There's always wetter some places than another. And particularly around Le Mans, you and it's a job to get the brain to get into it. Apart from respect the fact that when you get there, it could be very different to what it was, you know, whatever minutes before it was last lap, four and a half, five minutes before. And people always talk about the the ruts down Mulsan as as to where the the trucks have been and yeah. uh, the the public road generally, and presumably the the, the water sits there as well. Uh, very much so. Yeah, that is chronic. Um, and the, the most difficult thing is when they went, when they changed the circuit and put those two, what I hate, chicanes in on the Mulsanne Strait, mm. um, it made it twice as difficult because, of course, you know, you, you the first chicane is to the right. So you'd come up on the left hand side of the road, have to cross across, as you were braking, you had to cross across the, 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 the traffic from out of two ruts you were in over the crown of the road and across the two ruts. Uh, from the on, which would have been the other traffic on the road normally, it's a turn into the corner. And then when you came out, you'd come out of the of the double chicane in that one place, and you'd come out onto back onto the Mulsanne Strait, and you'd go across to the left-hand side, and you'd go down there, and you'd go, I've got to get back to the right in a minute because I've got a left-hand chicane coming up. Yeah. And, as you, and you'd think, do I go across now? And sometimes you couldn't. But remember, you're you are fiercely accelerating coming out. So it's better to go across when you've reached more of a terminal speed because the cars aren't trying to break away from speed. Um, whereas when you get half a mile further up, or a quarter of a mile further up the road, the, actually the car, the wheels aren't trying to break away, but when you turn, the aquaplaning comes in because you're going so fast. And it, it's really weird to get across from one, across the crown into the other ruts. And ruts is, it make, it actually make it sound a bit extreme, but they did feel like getting into ruts. And then you have to yes. flick it across as you turned into the left-hand chicane. It so, must, feel, must feel like driving across a ploughed field. But yeah, it, it was, but it was very consistent. You know, it's, it's the same damn ruts every time. And I <laughs> yeah. don't believe I ever said, I mean, as I said, if there were other cars around, you might not go over so soon because if you went over to overtake, let's say, a 911 or something or, a, or whatever slower cars because there had to be a lot if we were lead, damn nearly leading the race um, we would obviously didn't want to overtake where we could or should because we had to get by the car that was on the other side anyway yeah. so we had to wait till you got up to your maximum speed and think I think I can get across now 
before because I've got by that guy, but am I going to get in? Am I going to lose it when I get across in front of him? And then you've, 50, you know, 100 yards later, you break for the corner. So yeah. it, was, it, was, it, was, it was certainly very demanding on the old brain. <laughs> now tell me, racing at Le Mans with your son, Justin, that must have been pretty special. Yes, I had done it in 92 in the Porsche with mm -hmm. Tiffany Dell and, and the Alliance. And I, it was pretty, that was pretty terrifying because it piddled with rain the whole, most of that race. And we were on, uh, we were on, uh, we put a low drag set up on because we thought we had to try and go as quick as the, 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 the then uh, very fast new GT uh, race cars that had come in, uh, the three litre or the three and a half litre Formula One engine cars, if you recollect. Mm, and, yeah. and of course, um, so we thought, well, we, we just got, because our engines aren't fast enough to keep up with them, we needed to have less drag. So we did the less drag thing. And then, of course, it poured with rain, which made it even double wet, really. But that really was the previous time that I'd sort of put up with, with that situation. But with Justin, it was just a, a wonderful opportunity. I mean, he was going very well in the car with Andy during that season. And, you know, he didn't make mistakes as far, from what I recollect at all. I mean, he spun as well, I think, a few times in the race. Yeah. And, of course, that one time in the night, he had a hideous spin and that that freaked him out. And that's why he got out of the car for three or four hours or Dave Price kept him out because he spooked himself. And I don't think, I'm sorry, I'm straying a little bit in what my answer is, but I think if Le Mans, I've just already said, is so difficult in the heavy rain, and you come over these brows, and as I say, if if six cars have gone through, the road will be pretty good and it'll be stable for maybe three or four laps, maybe five laps coming through behind people, which have gone through four or five hundred yards ahead. Uh, but this one lap, I came around, or he came around, and I did the same. Of course, we all did at some point, and he came round over the brow. But nobody, obviously, the the water was lying there badly, and he just, you know, he was inching the car through it because you're on fast acceleration up to the Porsche curves. And the whole lot went out of control. And, and you, because you cannot see the difference between the grass and the track, you can't see the white lines in the rain because no. it's just teeming down. Everything is black. And you just have to do it by, almost by feel. And he, I, I, I mean, that's what I'm saying from my point of view. So what he did wasn't a big surprise. And, he, and the problem is when you've done that, we, it's a word they use in America a lot, that he obviously spooked himself. Yeah, and it was like I, every time he was going to go through there, he was going to freak out because he didn't know why it happened the first time. And when you don't know why something happens, uh, it puts you, it does deter you from doing it again. Yeah, well, <laughs> and it's in the I, back of your mind every bloody corner. So, so it was terrifying for him. So that is uh, that's another thing to do with Justin. But uh, I was driving with him. It was a wonderful opportunity, you know. And they did. It took a lot, quite a bit of convincing for me to do it with him, but. It was a lovely experience to drive with he and Andy. I mean, both British, and it was, and we did we did far far better than we thought. I think that's the the highlight of the thing was the fact that we we even finished. You know. Yeah, you you took the car over, if I remember, sort of having gone through that horrible wet Saturday night, and that it was it was sort of mid morning by the time you you took the car back, and it was still pouring with rain, um, and. You had a matter of seconds lead over JJ Leto, yeah. um, who uh, who was of course driving the car that went on to to win. Yeah. And I know you said said before that you you drove your heart out in that particular session. And how how do you feel at a point like that? Is it 
I'm going to win this and therefore I'm going to drive my heart out? Or is it that I think we're going to lose it, but I'm going to go down fighting? No, it was quite strange. Remember, uh, I mean, how, where, where are we now? We're 90, 95, so it's, God, how many years ago is that? 20, 26 uh, years. 26 years, yeah, I was, I was a wee bit younger then. But I was still bloody old for a, for a driver. And I, and I knew that JJ was in the other McLaren. And um, I knew he was a Formula One driver and, and all his history. And he's always damn quick. And uh, was really, it, it, well, I always say it was the works car. Ron disputes that, but it was, to me it was the works car. Yeah. And, and um, uh, so they had, well, I wouldn't say they had better equipment than us, but they, if anything was going to had the chance to win, it was going to be them more than yeah. us because McLaren themselves had so much more history. And of course, I don't think um, well, none of us had, a, had an inkling that they'd actually done a 24 hour test, which I think we all felt was a little unfair, but we only found that out 10 years later. So it's a bit, <laughs> you can't bitch about it. But good, for them, good for them. So would I, but um, so it was this sort of awful feeling at, as you say, mid-morning, it's so difficult because it gets daylight so damn early. Seven o'clock in the morning seems like mid-morning, but I think it was around about nine o'clock. I got in the car and the car was still running beautifully. And uh, I went out and I, I seemed to recollect, um, I, you know, I knew Leto was behind, but the problem is by the time you have to, t it takes your lap to get up to speed. And then, so you come by the pits once, you still don't know what the gap is because you haven't been by before. So it's almost nine, ten minutes before you're told, hey, old man, you you better hurry up here. And I went by and I, I didn't get that message to go quicker, but I got the gap. And I think it was like 26 seconds or something like that. And I went, oh, my gosh. And uh, to answer your basic, the original question was, how did you feel about it? Are you going to throw it all to the wall? But it was, I never thought about the victory. I just thought about not losing that that lead, which I guess is the same thing. But mm -hmm. I'm not. I thought, you know, it's daylight. The whole world can see this this dear old fellow running around age 55 <laughs> years old or whatever age I was, 55 years old, being thrashed by this young superstar called J.J. Leto. And they're not going to say, well, he was in a better car or whatever. They're just going to see what happens in front of them. And I thought, I just can't let that happen. And it wasn't that I didn't want, I just didn't want to be overtaken because we were leading. And it wasn't the fact we could win because to me, we still had a thousand kilometers to do. We had six hours to go. Yeah, yeah. It was just the fact that during that hour, I wasn't going to let him go by. And um, I, I, I seem to recollect and I, uh, that I, nobody ever told me different, but I, I was watching the times and I actually pulled out three seconds over that hour or hour, whatever time or two hours I was in the car. And I felt so good about it because, but more than anything, he didn't overtake me because it was easy. It's quite moderately easy to catch up, but it didn't show on paper that I was overtaken on the road. No, <laughs> and no. I, and I don't think he did catch up. I mean, nobody's going to ever really be able to prove Dave Price would know because he would have kept an eye on it. But, you know, so much happens in a 24 that that one or two and a half that I did would not have shown as being anything spectacular. But to me, it was one of my best drives ever, you know, in a, because I still we still feel to this day our wet tires weren't quite. They had I think they had Michelin's and we were on whatever's. And yeah, I you were on good years, weren't you? On good years. And we all knew they weren't as good in the rain. But I, I'm not making excuses. But I thought I drove really rather well. And it's the only time in my life I'd ever say that. But um, <laughs> because I think you, you, know, did. <laughs> you, 
Well, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. But the strange thing is, Paul, I don't think people notice it. They, you know, they, they, the race is so long and so full of um, action that they don't notice necessarily one person's drive. But to me, that was the drive, my drive of the race. I wouldn't say it was the drive of the race, but certainly a personal thing to not get overtaken by JJ, who I, who I adore. You know, he's a great friend and, you know, I admire him immensely. But that was it. I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> that's all my admiration, you know, yeah. <laughs> now, and, and ultimately, of course, it was, it was the clutch that slowed the car down and that arguably it it stole the win from you and that when you when you get to that point uh, where you think we we could be winning this if it wasn't for the clutch if it wasn't for mechanical problems when you've done it when you've done the race as many times as you had do you say, oh, well, that's motor racing? Or do you say, you know, do you go out and kick the metaphorical cat? No, I think that was that was a different one. It was because I had I, th- I thought I'd had my victories at Le Mans. And uh, in fact, I had. <laughs> but, I, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I it was and I didn't think of it. Oh, well, that's going This could be six. It was nothing like that. It was the fact of winning is a wins a win. It was nothing about the total. It was you wanted to win. You're up front. You're being up front over on and off or most of the time for about 12 hours and you know we felt we we deserve we 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 earned it we earned it very hard i mean we we all spun i'm sure i know jj spun everybody mm-hmm. spun you couldn't fail but spin somewhere because it was just so weird but i just felt that 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 should be our race i couldn't see why we should beat the works car but in many ways i wasn't aware that really it was the works car i didn't know i couldn't have told you what was on it I just knew that JJ was in it. And I do remember a little bit of correspondence, but phone calls prior to the race uh, during the weeks before getting to know there was going to be another car in that was basically supported by the factory. And I don't blame them for doing it because, they, you know, they, they should have put a car in and they did. But um, I, all I knew was that we didn't have, there was a modification that they, that we were, I believe that we, I, everything's I believe, because I was never part of that. Uh, but there was a modification. I mean, I think if it had been a team that I'd been with all year or two years, mm-hmm. I would have made much more of an input and said, come on, we need this or we need that. But, you know, who was I? I'd only invited three weeks before. I was really <laughs> just there as a stopgap, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, but, uh, in, in hindsight, I think, you know, we should look more seriously at this component that would have assisted in this problem. Now, there's so many stories go around in Pence who you listen to as to who was offered it and who turned it down. But I know we, our guys uh, turned it down because it was an immense amount of money to put. And, and, and the fact was, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody who owned a McLaren felt they could win the race anyway. So what was the point of spending a fortune on this, uh, you know, a technical asset, whatever it was, um, when you weren't going to be able to win the race because the prototypes would win, you know, yes, you know, you know, nobody went into a race thinking they're going to win with a GT car, did they? No, I, th- I think that's right. And, and if you if you look back now with the benefit of of hindsight, mm. that having a car like the F1 road car yeah. and then developed into the GTR, yeah, that when you think that it was Gordon Murray and Ron Dennis behind it, yeah. there was no way that they were not going to race a, a works car. But 
that's hindsight. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, and as I say, I honestly didn't. I just knew it was JJ Leto. Hence my emotion about. Um, it was only when I got out of the car that I realised it was. A, I really mentioned about the factory car thing, but I, I it didn't. It was just another car, but it was JJ, and I, uh, you know, who was so damn good, and I just wanted to stay ahead. Um, and, and of course, I'm sure in the back of your mind, there's a thing going around about, yeah, but we're, we're actually quite well, that the McLarens are doing damn well at the moment up here at the front. And I mm. just didn't want to give up that lead. To be, no, to be no, and, and rightly so. And, and you, you went back the following year to drive the same car in 1996, yeah. um, again with, with Andy and with Olivier Guillard. Uh, and... Yeah. You got a sixth place then, but uh, but once again the uh, the drivetrain was was a bit troublesome, wasn't it? Do you know? I don't remember because it really it was nothing compared to the year before. No, no, I've, I've, I went, I've I, got that feeling. Yeah, I went. I mean, don't say I didn't put my effort into it because we did. But I mean, whenever I'm behind the wheel, I'll always do my best. Um, and I I couldn't tell you a thing about that when we got sixth place because it was just a race when you were in GT and you would come in in the order in which you should <laughs> always. Yeah. And that um, of course was your your twenty sixth and and final the Mans twenty four hours. Yeah. Um, and it's you know it, it's a great way to sign off that you'd you'd been through all of those different cars and I think yeah. it's it's vitally important to acknowledge that that to go from something as highly technical as the GTR and as highly basic as the Porsche 917, um, that huge spread of cars. And that, of course, as as you've touched on with the, with the chicanes and the Porsche curves, of course, that that all all of those were additions since you started racing. Yeah. Just one, just one, one question, which has nothing to do really with uh, with the GTR. For you, w- over those twenty six years, what was the best time for Le Mans? Um, well, I mean, the best time for Le Mans was the best time for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, in all honesty, I mean, well, yes, I, I, think, I, I that. yeah. Well, I just I. But which is for, which in turn was for us and was in turn for Porsche. But I, I can't help people still ra- rave on about those amazing years with Group C. And I yeah. think Group C uh, was fantastic. And I mean, the public, I mean, you, I think you can go, it's not just Le Mans. I mean, people went to Brands Hatch, they went to Donington, they went to all the circuits in the world to see Group C. And, um, you know, it was major, major public uh, viewing. And of course, the drivers and the cars and the colours and the sponsors all became part of this amazing sort of PR circus. And we gave the world great racing. And uh, I, I know I feel it was great because we I was in it. But I mean, I think every driver would, would agree it was the greatest period that they could remember uh, because of the way, I mean, we'd go to the mall and I, I, I know, you know with, with Jackie and then with, with, with Hans Stuck, uh, you know, and I'll hold it, of course, but I, I, I won Le Mans that number at the five times. But it was the fact that um, anybody in those cars could win. And they're going to a race and there were 22 or whatever number of of, 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 of Group C, of, sorry, Porsche 962s in it. Mm. Any one of them. And, of course, there were Jags in there and there was Nissan and there was Mazdas. And anybody could win because there were, it was just great racing. And it was great to have those manufacturers in there. 
And I honestly don't think it's ever been the same because it's changed. But that's what happens in, in life. The ch <laughs> things change. But the famous names that made racing have basically sort of slid away a little bit. You know, we haven't got Ferrari. We haven't got Alfa Romeo. We haven't got Porsche. We haven't got... Um, we got Aston Martin back, so don't get me wrong. I, I know that, but still not in an outright winning car. But I just think um, we had all, uh, we, you know, it was an amazing era. Derek, thank you for taking the time to uh, to share those thoughts about uh, the McLaren GTR with us. It's um, it's an important part of the Mont history generally, and yeah. the, the Porter Press book is a superb piece of work. And that this really just puts the cherry on top. And, uh, and thank you for that. So thank you for your thoughts about the additional perspective of that remarkable race in 1995. And uh, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again on Historic Racing News. Well, I'll be around for a little bit longer, I think. So <laughs> any time, I'd be, I'd be grateful. I love talking about the, any of those years. Every year had a story. You've got to be with Lamont, hasn't it? There's always a story for everybody that goes. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Paul. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Now, that's a fabulous two-volume book. Uh, it's huge. It's heavy. It goes from the birth of each car, its competition history, lots of stories about each car. Um, it's very expensive. It's 450 quid, uh, each of them signed by the author. And there are only a thousand copies. So uh, you know, think think long and hard about that. If um, if that wasn't exclusive enough for you, they have made to order a collection, a collector's edition, which is £1,500. And there's also an owner's edition. And you can only have that if you own an F1 GTR and if you own an F1 GTR the purchase price of the book of two and a half thousand pounds probably is uh, is a drop in the ocean but nonetheless it's an awful lot of money for a book but it is an absolutely brilliant book I loved it it's it's that great mix between facts and stories and the pictures in the book are amazing uh, Produced by John Brooks, and that um, his his pictures in there are absolutely incredible. It's a great read. 450 quid is a huge amount of money, but it's worth every penny. The book's available from Porter Press, um, and that's porterpress.co.uk. £450, and put it on your Christmas list. Get it on early. Now, Paul, you were let off the leash a few weeks ago and uh, went off up to Donington Park. And uh, I think you found a, a rather tasty Porsche with a bit of history. I was actually fortunate enough to actually be able to go to a race circuit, which is not, not something many people have been able to say at the moment. Yeah, it was a bit strange, actually. My drive up there, I suddenly realised was the uh, longest journey I'd made in six months from uh, South Coast up to Donington Park. But uh, yeah, I was there for the actually opening round of the uh, Porsche Club Motorsports new series, the 911 Challenge. And really, the standout car there was a very beautiful and very original 1974 Porsche 911 Carrera RSR. So you know, the classic racing Porsche. And not only that, but this was a car with a bit of history behind it. It was actually um, bought from you by, uh, and here's, here's a name from Hector Rabak, 
if you know oh, the, yeah. the, the Mexican uh, racing driver. Not, not possibly not when you think of old Formula One drivers, the first name you'd think of. But, uh, you know, this is a guy who actually did Formula 58 Formula One Grand Prix over a number of seasons. And, wow. uh, you know, had quite a history in in that. But this car with uh, its Cafe Mexico livery on it, absolutely fantastic. But it's got history from the uh, Daytona 24 Hours, where it actually came ninth in 75. But then just showing that how what a tool, the what a weapon the RSR must have been, because eight years later, the car <laughs> came fifth overall, second in class. So, you know, the Porsche RSR was still competitive. I can't think of... In modern sports car racing, another car that would have been competitive eight years later at the same event. It just doesn't work like that anymore. And this car also competed at Sebring, where it was uh, fourth overall in the 12 hours in 1982. And then has uh, basically gone through a few hands. And uh, I'm not sure. I think I will say, yeah, it was sold at auction for $1.2 million. But the car's now belongs to uh, Rainer Becker and is looked after by Andy Prill. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It's still got the little light pods, which look tiny by modern standards on the front that they added for Daytona for obviously racing in the dark in the 24 hours. So absolutely beautiful car and immaculate. And I was fortunate enough. And there are pictures on our Facebook page that, uh, yeah, they opened up the engine cover for me. And, you, you know, you joke about you could eat your dinner off there. You wouldn't dare because <laughs> Andy Prill would give you such a look. But, yeah, it was absolutely immaculate and looked fantastic. And, uh, of course, like all these flat six three-litre Porsches, sounded amazing when it was out on the track. There was actually a slight question mark at one point about whether it was going to get through the noise testing. But apparently that was just it strolled through. There's no problem at all. But, uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So a nice memory of the uh, 911 Carrera RSR. And, uh, yeah, Hector Rabak, who actually finished his season, and I'd completely forgotten this, with uh, as teammate to Nelson Piquet at Brabham. So that's really going back into Formula 1 history. Okay, which other cars did you race in, in Formula 1? Because I know this. He, 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 I believe he had a thing about old uh, buying lotuses off off the t- off the factory, which I always thought was slightly risky because Colin had a sort Colin Chapman had a bit of a reputation for never quite giving you the best car, did he? Um, <laughs> so he had a cup. I think he raced a seventy eight and a seventy nine Lotus in quite an unusual livery. Am I thinking this correctly? You're spot on, Mister Jerd. Uh, he was in. He he really converted the black and gold of the JPS cars as they then were into dark brown and gold, gold pinstriping, on his 78 and 79. And then he built his own car, the Rubak, surprisingly enough, which I think probably somebody could tell us was very largely just a uh, a reworked Lotus. I, I don't think it was very much more than that. I think you're exactly, I have to, I have to sadly admit I've done my research at this point. Oh, well done. If anybody was going to, you were. It was actually, yes, you're quite right, because he actually had issues getting the spares for the Lotus. So um, he basically got Penske to do an essentially a copy of it, which was the HR100. And, of course, this was back when Penske had quite a quite a facility down in Paul. You don't tend to associate Paul down on the south coast as a, as a hub of motorsport, but they were building Indy cars, and they actually built this Formula 1 car for Hector Rabak. And uh, say after uh, eight, he was in Formula One till eighty one, finished tenth in the championship, and then moved on to uh, Indy cars. But uh, basically, I think I had had a crash, and that probably uh, ended his career. And he, he, his final race was actually at Brands Hatch, the race of the champions in nineteen eighty three. Well researched, well researched. <laughs> 
Thank you. And, and I think while we're talking of names from the past and on, 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 a, on a very different tone, um, one driver who really is, you know, quite a lot, few, lot of people's heroes is Vic Elford. Fantastic driver. And, you know, you always talk hear, talk about Vic Elford as someone who could actually be quick in a variety of cars. But he was actually, you know, a total all-rounder. You know, if we just look at 1968, this is a man who won the Monte Carlo rally in a 911, went to, went to Florida and then literally just a week or so later won the Daytona 24 hours in a Porsche and then also won the Targa Floria in another Porsche that year. And this is as well as racing in Formula One, where he made his debut at Rouen for the Coopers, Cooper. And the Cooper BRM was not a great car, but he still brought it home fourth and was a real veteran. You know, I think people still think back to the days when he was actually, uh, he was the person willing to try the new 917 in 1969 when the 917 at Le Mans was Porsche, you know, was an animal. And yeah. Porsche were very, very nervous about who was actually driving it. But, um, you know, he drove it apparently because it, he wanted to take, he went down the straight 20 mile an hour quicker than anything else, but um, a long career and someone who's been around motorsport for a long, long time. But uh, now currently 85 years old, Vic is actually suffering because he's actually got sadly an aggressive form of prostate cancer, but he's got that now combined with a broken leg after a fall. And uh, this has really dented his lifestyle. And also, um, you know, he was still earning from going to historic meetings and, uh, you know, I can remember being at a meeting a few years ago with seeing him as a driver coach. So uh, with the help of people like Marshall Pruitt in the US and Brian Redmond, there is actually now a, a GoFundMe page, which is actually raising money for Vic. So uh, please do take stop, take a moment. This is really one of the great names of the sport, probably not the first name that springs to mind, but an amazing racer with an amazing career. And if you do go to GoFundMe, just go to the front page pop elford e-l-f-o-r-d into the search and it's going to be the first hit um they've got a target of one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and they are a long long way towards this but uh, if you want to really think and really get some idea of how well vic elford is thought of within the sport scroll down some of the people who've actually contributed there are some fantastic names there so uh please do take a moment if you can help then do so and uh, yeah we wish our best to vic on his recovery Jim, we're, uh, we're going to be talking about some rather different cars in our special next month. Yes, we are, Paul. The folks on Twitter asked for it, and we're going to bring it to you. And that is a retrospective look back at the Can-Am series. The original Can-Am raced from 1966 to 1974, took a hiatus for a couple of years, and then they used converted Formula 5000 cars to try and rekindle the series. So there was some sort of Can-Am racing uh, less of a couple of years from 1966 to about 1982, and it's a very rich history uh, started by the Sports Car Club of America. And the man who, who started it, uh, we've talked about before, he was probably one of the best innovators in the history of sports car racing, and that was John Bishop. And we'll have a little more detail about that when we, uh, when we have our special. But we're very excited. We're going to be talking Can-Am. And Joe, neither you nor I ever got to see Can-Am in period because we were – the wrong side of the Atlantic Ocean, as far as that was concerned. But uh, seen a few cents. You know what, Paul? It's one of the main regrets I'll go to my grave with, uh, not having the opportunity. One, not being in the born in the right part of the world, and two, being born perhaps a little bit too late. But um, and I'm not saying I, I'm not. I wasn't around in that period. It's just uh, in the UK we didn't get much coverage. But it doesn't stop us looking back with 
And you know what? They're not even rose-tinted glasses. They're clear as day glasses because <laughs> that those regulations that allowed pretty much – I think the only stipulation was that the car had to fit into a box for dimensions. And they were the sort of cars that, um, as a kid, you would buy a toy car model and you would look at it and think, well, that can't be real. That's But they were real because it was a model of a Can-Am McLaren or a, a Porsche 917. And, you know, for me, that period of t- – it was pure. You know, the, all right, the the racing wasn't necessarily great. There wasn't much overtaking necessarily. Um, and for a chunk of that, the Halcyon early days, the early iteration of the, of the series, it was more of the Bruce and Denny show with domination from McLaren. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's not forget, the first champion, the first Can-Am champion in 1966 was a Brit, our very own John Surtees. And it was only two years after he was Formula One world champion. So effectively, the the two-year-old Formula One world champion won the first Can-Am series. And there's loads of other connections. You know, the first race, the first major motor race at Road Atlanta, that's kind of become my home track in the United States. That, that was won by Tony Dean, Richard Dean's father. You know, another Brit who's not that far away from me in the UK. He came from Leeds. There's lots of, um, there's lots of, there's lots that we can talk about. There's lots that we're gonna talk about. It was just a period of motorsport that, for me, was just when you say pure motorsport, I think of Can-Am. Well, you can uh, you can tell that we're fizzing to be able to talk to you about Can-Am, and we'll be swapping a few stories there. As always, ladies and gentlemen, if you have been, thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>